Okay, well today we're starting a, um, a new series, which I'm always excited to start new series. Last week we finished our Acts series, and thank you so much for your encouragement with that, and you're just hearing about some of the things that have been happening this week in, in groups and seeking to apply that. That's just so exciting for us as a local church, and hearing more and more about things that are going on in our midst. That's just great stuff, and so encouraged by that. One of the things that happens, or a question that I get asked a lot, is how do you decide what preaching series to, to do when? How does that work, and how, how does that come about? Let me just fill you in on that a little bit and just take a minute to do that. One of the things I'm always seeking to do is, as we bring the whole counsel of God to our local church, it's a hard thing to work out sometimes where to go next. But often you are thinking in terms of diet. So where we are in the Bible, what genre we, we have done and what, what genre we, we would like to do, but also heavily applicational books as opposed to not-so-applicational books where we just get to seek and savior the Lord and see how great he is. And our application is check him out, fall more and more love, love with him. And so having finished Acts, which is a very applicational book, well, what our hope is in this series is to go through Isaiah and look at some of Isaiah. Next time up, we are going to be doing a letter. So it's probably going to be 1 Peter or James. I haven't decided yet, but it's going to be a heavily applicational letter. And so that's when we go to preaching very clearly where it's verse by verse. And we seek to, oh, this morning we're going to do half a verse. And then we go deep into that because that's the way letters are written. You can do that with letters. And you can't really do that with Acts because it's narrative. But we thought it'd be good to actually look at an Old Testament prophet. Now, if we do it verse by verse, we're going to be here for the next 25 years. And as a man who's been called to bring the whole counsel of God to you, that we haven't got time to do that. And, but what we really wanted to do with this series is call it Behold Your Redeemer. And really look at 10 separate bits of Isaiah. So we're not going to go through it specifically verse by verse, but 10 different bits of Isaiah that help us to see how great God really is. Who he is, the one that we worship. And so Brendan's going to be kicking this series off for us today. And buddy, we thank God for you. We thank God for your preaching gift and who you are. Let's welcome him as he comes up. Morning, church. It's a less than enthusiastic reply. (laughs) Well, it's great to be with you on this uh, cold winter's morning and uh, that you've braved it. The cold, not only brave the cold, but the long weekend to get here. So I'm thankful that God's brought you to to join us this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open up to Isaiah chapter 1. As Dave said, we're we're not going to be preaching sort of bit by bit, painfully, verse by verse through Isaiah. Uh, We're just going to be looking at some big picture. Today's a big picture message. We're looking at Isaiah as a whole. Uh, We're going to be looking at the big picture of Isaiah, trying to paint some context and really helping you guys to get a taste for it, get stuck in. I'm excited about Isaiah. We've been looking at, in Into the Word, uh, Romans. Uh, If Romans is the greatest uh, example of theology in the New Testament, the most detailed uh, exposition of the gospel in the New Testament, then Isaiah is its counterpart in the Old Testament. Some of the richest, juiciest, most fantastic, some of my favorite bits of the Bible, so I'm so excited. It's, it's a book that's all about God. Uh, and um, so we'll be looking at, at some highlights, really looking at some highlights, 10 aspects really throughout this time of, of who God is. And as Dave's alluded to, it's going to take us right through to September. Rightio, so open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to start by reading from verse 21. 
before uh, I pray. So Isaiah chapter 1, 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness, lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord of hosts declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. And will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first. And your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we want to thank you for your word. What a beautiful testimony of your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you're not a God who leaves us in the dark, but a God who speaks to us. Lord, I pray this morning for us as a church. Lord, would you help us to hear your word? Would you help us to hear and understand who you are? How you're a majestic God how you're a faithful God, how you're a redeeming God. Help us by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Gran Torino is a great movie. Uh, It stars Walt Kowalski as the lead character played by Clint Eastwood. Uh, He's a racist, bad-tempered, retired assembly line worker and uh, Korean War veteran who has recently been uh, widowed after 50 years of marriage. Walt's Michigan neighborhood, formerly populated by working-class white families, is now dominated by poor Asian immigrants, and gang violence is commonplace. The Hmong Vang Law family reside next door to Walt, and initially he wants nothing to do with his new neighbors, particularly after he catches Thao a member of the family, attempting to steal his prized Ford Gran Torino as a forced initiation into a Hmong gang run by his cousin. As penance, Thao's mum makes him work for Walt, who has him do the odd jobs around the neighbourhood, and the two form this kind of grudging mutual respect. Gran Torino, it's one of my favourite movies, And the reason is because it's actually a film that's all about redemption. Initially, Walt thinks he's out to redeem Thao. He's trying to clean up the life of his dropkick next-door neighbor, who he calls Egg Roll, by getting him to do a job protecting him from the gang and helping him win the affections of his love interest, uh, Yao, who he calls Yum Yum. But the film is actually about Walt's redemption. You see, 
Walt may be a hardworking man, but he's a bad, he's bad tempered, estranged from his family and friends, racist, and completely self-interested. Throughout the film, what becomes apparent is Walt actually begins to care about someone other than himself. He begins to care about Thou and his family as he softens towards them, culminating in actually laying down his life in order to protect them at the end of the film. It's a beautiful act of love and expression of selflessness. It marks Walt as a redeemed man. You know, our society, we love a good redemption story, don't we? We love it. You know, a rags to riches where the disadvantaged man who works hard and earns his fortune. We love that stuff. You know, the gangster becomes celebrity artist. The struggling athlete turns to lead point scorer. Redemption. We love a good redemption story. Well, friends, this morning as we begin our series looking at the book of Isaiah, we're going we're gonna to meet the God who is at his very core a redeemer. He loves to redeem people. So this message I've entitled with the, with the name of the series, Behold Your Redeemer. And I've got three points. Redemption defined, redemption required, and redemption provided. Three points, but really one hope for this message, and it's really straightforward. And that is that as we, as we begin to dip our toes into the book of Isaiah, that, that you would, that we would behold our Redeemer. That as we sort of start out on this series, we just get a glimpse of him. That's really what the hope for this message is. So, point one, redemption defined. Before we get stuck into really looking at redemption, we need some background info about Isaiah. It's a, it's a book where context really is vital. You won't properly be able to understand the book of Isaiah unless you know some important details. So open with me again to Isaiah chapter 1. We're just going to read the first verse as we begin to look at the issue of context. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. At the very beginning of this book, we really, Isaiah tells us not only a few things about himself, but about the time in which he's writing. He says he's written the book during this length of time that stretches from the reign of King Uzziah to the reign of King Hezekiah. And we know what, what times these are. We know that the King Uzziah reached the throne or, or uh, ascended to the throne in the year 740 BC, in the 8th century BC. And King Hezekiah died uh, roughly 686 BC. So Isaiah, at the very start of his book, tells us that the, the book was written over a period, across a period of about 54 years. This was set before the destruction of the kingdom in the north. Uh, a couple of hundred years earlier, there had been a great division between the kingdoms uh, between in, within Israel following the death of Solomon and the arise of his son. And following this, this uh, dispute, the kingdom had in fact split in half, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. 
Israel, we need to understand, is a tiny, weeny, divided kingdom surrounded by three massive superpowers. Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. A tiny kingdom surrounded by three massive superpowers. And so the book is really roughly divided in two main sections, two main periods of time that Isaiah, as he writes, addresses. The first period addresses really the Assyrian crisis. You'll see a slide coming up on the screen uh, in a moment, which gives you a map and helps you to see Assyria. Assyria is labeled up on the map. And you need to understand Assyria is a massive superpower. And at this time in the 8th century, Assyria is growing rapidly. It's expanding, it's multiplying, it's reaching out and conquering the lands around it. And here lies our people, the people of God in this tiny kingdom of Judah, next door neighbors with a huge superpower. And so the temptation throughout this first section of the book is to trust in the things around and not in God. Trust in people and other nations and not in God. And so we see these two events that happen that occur. Two threats. Firstly, during the reign of King Ahaz in Judah, as Assyria grows and expands and multiplies, it gets closer and closer to Israel, the northern kingdom in the north, and its counterpart uh, uh, of Syria under King Rezin. And in the year 735 B.C., from fear of what Assyria is going to do to them, that Assyria is going to conquer them, they approach King Ahaz and say, Ahaz, let's, let's get this, this company of brothers together, let's form like a, a, a pact all together, and we can together, we can fight off Assyria. And Ahaz goes, no, nah, I don't want a part of it. So what do the kings of Syria and of Israel do? They go, right, you won't join us, we're going to make you join us. And they wage war against the south. Now, while they wage war against the south, what does the king of Judah do? He appeals to Assyria itself and says, Hey, king of Assyria, let's make a treaty. I'll pay you money and you watch my back and, and defend off these guys who are attacking me. Assyria then comes and destroys the north, destroys Syria, but Jerusalem is left in bondage, greatly in debt, crippled by tribute, paying tribute to Assyria. The second threat happens some 30 years later under King Hezekiah. Assyria is now under a different king. It's growing. It's expanding. They're conquering the, the, the land around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under threat. And so King Hezekiah appeals to Egypt and says to the Egyptian king, help me defend off Assyria. And this enrages Assyria and it enrages God. Listen to this. From Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1. Knowing this gives you such a richness to understand the book. In Isaiah 31, 1, the Lord says to Hezekiah, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. The Lord says to the king Hezekiah, Woe to those who trust in men and not in me. And so Hezekiah repents and he trusts in the Lord. 
Well, next we move to the second section of the book. The Assyrian crisis stretches from chapter 1 really through to chapter 39. And in the second half of the book from 40 to 66, we see a second major crisis. And that is the Babylonian crisis. The Assyrian kingdom falls as now Babylon begins to grow and expand and expand. And, and eventually it grows and expands such to the extent that in 586 BC they conquer Jerusalem and take the Jews from Jerusalem to exile in Babylon. Now, the Assyrian crisis had been at the time of Isaiah's writing. These were events that were occurring or threatening to occur around the time that he was writing. Now Isaiah prophesies to the distant future, events that will occur some 100 years after when he is writing the book of Isaiah. And as the exiles he prophesies are taken away to, to Babylon in exile, the temptation is to think that God has forgotten Israel. That God no longer remembers the promises he made to Abraham and the fathers. And so we read in Isaiah 49, 14. Let me read to you. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And hear what the Lord says back to his people. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have you engraved on the palms of my hands. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord prophesying through Isaiah to a distant time when they'd be in exile says, how can I forget you? The message in the second half of the book is trust in Yahweh who will restore you. And here we begin to see the language of redemption really coming to fore as as God even promises that he'll use the king of Persia, a man who wouldn't be born yet for many, many years to come, the King Cyrus of Persia, to do it. It speaks of this glorious post-exile restoration when God's people will be brought back to their land, and when this even greater new Jerusalem will exist in the distant future with reconciliation between God and man, a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth. Well, if that's some of the structure of the book, how about some of the themes as we begin? Well, the main theme really of Isaiah throughout it is God himself, the holy God who acts as he pleases for his own name's sake. Barry Webb puts it this way. He says, The central theme of the book is God himself, who does all things for his own sake. Isaiah defines everything else by its relation to God, whether it is rightly adjusted to him as the gloriously central figure in all reality. God is the Holy One of Israel, the one who is high and lifted up, but who also dwells among the contrite and lowly, the sovereign over the whole world whose wrath is fierce, but whose cleansing touch atones for sin, whose salvation flows in endless supply, whose gospel is good news of happiness, who is moving in history towards the blessing of his people and to the exclusive worship due him. He is the only saviour and the whole world will know it. To rest in the promises of this God is his people's only strength. To delight themselves in his word is their refreshing feast. 
To serve his cause is their worthy devotion, but to rebel against him is endless death. This book is about God himself, the Holy One of Israel. This is the most frequently attested title to God in this book, 25 times. Far more and beyond any other book of the whole Bible. And so it's appropriate that throughout this series we take highlights of this God because fundamentally the book is all about him. But second to the Holy One of God, if that is the most frequent title given to him, second is your Redeemer. Your Redeemer occurs in this book some 13 times. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's really two words for redemption. One is a general word. Another is ga'al, a specific legal word. And the book of Isaiah uses this word more than any other book in the whole Bible, more than Leviticus, more than Ruth, more than the Psalms. Isaiah uses it the most. The word ga'al means to claim back or purchase back. It can be used of animals or blood guilt or of slaves. John Stott defines it this way. He says, at its most basic, to redeem is to buy or buy back, whether as a purchase or as a ransom. Inevitably then, the emphasis of the redemption image is on our sorry state, indeed our captivity, in sin which made an act of divine rescue necessary. To redeem is to buy back. An image that conjures up our own pathetic situation in bondage to slave and sin. Well, Isaiah is a book about God, the God who is holy, but the God who will buy back his people. God is saying, I'm buying you back. I've bought you back. Immediately, I guess we begin to ask, buy back from what? Why do we need to be bought back? And so begins my, our second point, Redemption required. Well, I want to here pause and look at three different areas that we see in Isaiah as reasons why redemption really is required. The first is redemption from Israel's own wickedness. Uh, Turn with me again to Isaiah chapter 1, and I want to read from verse 5, Isaiah 1, 5. God says, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. You know, here, right at the beginning of the book, Isaiah begins to portray Jerusalem. And how does he paint it? He paints it as a diseased body. You know, one of the things about my work at the hospital is that I get to see all manner of diseased bodies. And sometimes, friends, it is a disgusting sight. A bad infection allowed to fester. The leg swells and turns red. The toes blacken. The flesh rots. It seeps and oozes and pustulates. Isaiah looks at Jerusalem, the the people of God, and he says, 
You're like a body covered in this sort of sores. You're like a festering wound. Such is the state of your wickedness. Read on. Continue with me. Verse 12. He says, When you come before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incenses and abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah paints a city of wickedness, but a city full of religious hypocrites. Religious people who come before God to worship him, performing rituals and vows, lighting incense, but really with hands that are covered in blood. Wickedness, oppression, murder and strife. Well, it doesn't end there. Continue on with me. Verse 21, as we read earlier. The Lord says, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. This is powerful language, friends. He describes the city of Jerusalem as a prostitute. In the Old Testament, God uses the language of prostitution to describe people as idolaters. This is the language of idolatry. God who asks his people to be faithful to, to him, but who run after multiple other gods, who sell themselves to the gods of different nations. The best way, according to God, to describe such people is as prostitutes, prostituting themselves at the foreign gods. More than that, more than idolatry, is Absolute corruption, bribes and injustice, wickedness, oppression. He says a, a city who was once like precious silver is now dross. Dross is, is, precious, is, is, is scum that mixes in with, with precious metals defiling the whole thing. This is a city, this is a people that are corrupt and wicked and murdering and slandering who have forsaken their God. But yet, read on, he promises... And I will restore, verse 26, your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. God is saying, I'm going to take you back. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to redeem you from the wicked mess you're in. Well, firstly, Redemption from wickedness. Secondly, redemption from slavery in Babylon. Not only does Isaiah foresee Israel in slavery in the future, but he foresees God's promise to reclaim them. And so we, we read in passages like Isaiah 43:1 this, this famous and precious passage that says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who Formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Hear this. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Why? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring offspring, your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. And again in Isaiah 51.1 or 51.11, Isaiah prophesies, he says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, that is the Mount of Jerusalem, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, is saying, I'm going to reclaim. I'm going to redeem my people from slavery and bring them home. Or thirdly, not only redemption from their wickedness and from slavery, but also from judgment. Turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 1, and I just want to read two verses, verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. The Lord looks at his wicked people, his people that have gone astray, and he says, You are my enemies. Because you have turned your back on me, you have become my enemies. And so I will smelt you. I will refine you with my judgment. In verse 66, or chapter 66 at the end of the book, he writes, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And by his sword will all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. And then hear this, the very last verse of the whole book. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. God's people are facing eternal judgment. They are full of evil and his holiness and his wrath is burning against them. And you know, friends, it's at this point that we begin to see ourselves. Because, friends, we too are desperately in need of redemption. You know, Ephesians 2 says, but as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead in your trespasses and sins following the prince of this world, that is the devil, and in bondage to your sins and your own sinful desires. You were dead spiritually. 
following your own desires and your own wants and absolutely unable to see God or to turn to Him. That's, that's how you once were if you're, if you're a Christian. And our own experience testifies to this, doesn't it? That so often we find ourselves caught in our physical passions, so, so caught in our passions that we almost seem unable to do anything but, but give in to them. And so in this passage we learn that if you have in any way rebelled against God, if you have in any way turned your back on Him and rebelled against Him, you face eternal judgment. And so God's people are in desperate need of redemption. Redemption from sin, redemption from slavery, and redemption from God's own judgment. Well, point two, the need for redemption. Redemption required. Let's move now to point three, redemption provided. Throughout this book, the book of Isaiah, we're going to see God's promise to provide redemption for his people. These people are caught in this downward spiral from which they really can't escape and, and they've made themselves his enemies and so, they, so they, they really need intervention. And so I really wanted to end it here by, by looking at two aspects of how the Lord goes about providing this redemption. Two aspects of his provision of redemption for his people. The first thing that we need to understand about the way God provides his redemption is that it's provided by an agonizing father. Turn with me again to chapter 1 and read from verse 2 with me. Isaiah 1-2 Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. God portrays himself as an anguished father whose children don't even know him. So turn with me again to verse 18 and read again in in light of this. God says as a father to his children, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God, the anguished father, says to his kids, he says, Ah, sinful nation, come reason with me. Come, turn to me and find redemption. And so we see this this theme of God's desire to provide redemption as an anguished father stretching throughout the book. You know, in the context of Hezekiah and his pact with Egypt, God says of, of his people at that time, for they are rebellious people, lying children. Children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. It's a father crying out to his children saying, Ah, why would you destroy yourself? You know, I was thinking about it just the other week. I was uh, at the movies with Charlotte the other day and 
And I saw a kid physically assaulting, physically beating up his dad out the front of the cinemas. The kid was all of about five, maybe six. And I think the dispute was over a, a chock top or, or something of the sort. And he was told he couldn't have it. And the dad repeatedly saying, that's enough. And the kid who's at this point trailing behind him is physically running at his dad and smacking him, and like physically hitting him. And the dad keeps saying, no, that's enough. And this kid is running at his dad and hitting him time and time again. No! And that's something of the picture of what we're seeing here. You have this, this sinful, wicked people unwilling to hear. And yet a Lord who says in chapter 30, 18, just on from that passage we just read, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. We have in this scripture an anguished father desiring to redeem his children who are full of wickedness and unwilling. Friends, do you realize this is the nature of your God in heaven? That he is a father first and foremost with children who he loves. That he is merciful and kind, that he does not forget your situation, that he waits to be gracious to you. Isn't that beautiful? A father who deeply loves his children. Well, not only provided by an agonizing and agonizing father, but provided at the cost of his son, the servant. In verse 27, it says, but I will redeem Jerusalem or Jerusalem will be redeemed through justice. And so there's this underlying question that runs throughout, throughout the book of Isaiah, this question that is sort of sitting under the surface, which is how can a holy and just God redeem this wicked people? I mean, I trust you've been affected by that image of Jerusalem. It's so corrupt and defiled and wicked. It's full of murderers and slanderers and idolaters. And so the question is, God's saying he's going to redeem his people, but how is this just? How can a holy and righteous God justly redeem his people? And the answer is through the servant. See, God says and promises that he will send this servant, a servant who appears time and time again throughout the book of Isaiah. We learn in chapter 9 that the servant is in fact God himself, almighty God. We learn that the servant will suffer with his people. He's named Emmanuel, God with us. We learn that the servant will redeem his people, that he will break the rods of their oppressors. We learn that the servant will rule over his people, that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And we learn that the servant will suffer for his people. Isaiah 53, 4 says, And surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And this morning I was just considering this. And considering the absolute scandal of it all. You know, just this week I was coming home from work uh, late at night. It was about midnight. And I was walking up our driveway. I'm now living out uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere in Mount Kola. And uh, it, one of the beautiful things about Mount Kola is it's uh, such a clear, clear sky at night. And I, I just, for, for the first time in ages, I just looked up at the sky. And it was a cold night because it was absolutely cloudless. And I could just see all of these millions of stars so clearly. And it just occurred to me in that moment, we worship the God who created all of these. Billions and billions of flaming massive fireballs, a thousand times fold larger than this earth. Billions upon billions just in this galaxy. A vast universe. More than anything we could ever possibly imagine, such as the vastness of the universe with which our God breathed into existence by the word of his mouth. A almighty, massive God. Time and time again here in the book of Isaiah, not only is he called the Holy One of Israel, but he's called the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the sovereign Lord who reigns over all armies, all nations. He raises up Assyria. He then raises up Babylon. Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, is like his plaything in this book. He uses him as he pleases to free his people. A massive, almighty God. But he sends his son for his creations, for us, to bear our sin on that cross. I was thinking about the scandal of it all this week. You know, many years ago, once uh, in an art class, I made for my dad a clay pot. And I, I put like glaze on it, and I'm not very artistic, if you know me, and so the glaze kind of all ran into itself, and it kind of looked like a massive blob. <laughs> my dad received the gift with some thanks, and, you know, thank you, son, and put it in a corner in his office, and... and um, I was thinking on that this morning. Something that I'd created. I mean, can you imagine, friends, if I said to you, I'm going to lay down my life for my pot? That would be crazy. That, that would be, it'd be absolutely crazy. And yet, we're not talking about some man laying down his life. We're talking about the sovereign maker of all those nations and galaxies and stars laying down his life. And we're not talking about him laying down his life for just some inanimate pot. We're talking about laying down his life for a a pot, a clayman jar that has fundamentally rebelled against him, that spits actively in his face and says, I want nothing to do with you. What a scandal. And yet that is the picture that we're painted of our God here in this book of Isaiah, that he would redeem his people at the cost of his very own son. So friends, if you're sitting here this morning 
and you don't know him, let me just encourage you. The message of scripture is that when Christ hung on that cross, it was for you. He took on that cross the wickedness, the sin, for which you rightly should incur the wrath of God. The punishment that rightly is due for every sin you have ever committed, he took on that cross. Name the sin, he nailed it to that tree. And God, our God, is an anguishing father who longs to redeem his people. He longs to redeem you. And he extends to you the gift of his son. If only you'd just repent and believe. Repent, change your mind, turn from the way you've been living, believe, trust in him and him alone. I just want to encourage you. If you're sitting here this morning and you've never asked to receive that gift, freely available for you this morning. I'd love to pray with you. Um, so if you're sitting here this morning and, and you know you need to do business with God, let me just invite you. After the service, would you, would you come down the front and, and speak with me or speak with the person who brought you and do business with God today? But for the rest of us, as now we dip our toes into Isaiah, may we Behold our God. May you behold your Redeemer, loving Father, sending his Son. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray for us this morning as a church. Help us to never grow overly familiar with the message of your cross. Help us never to lose sight of who you are and all you've done in, for us in and through your son, Jesus. Lord, as we dig into the book of Isaiah, Lord, we, we, we just pray. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to see you and grow in love for you, our mighty King. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen.